Good morning, uh, good afternoon or good evening, depending on uh, wherever you are. I would uh, like to um, give a presentation on the uh, UN Human Rights Treaty-based complaints procedures, uh, their development over the years, their efficiency, how they are received at the national level. Uh, my name is Marcus Schmidt. I've been uh, with the United Nations since uh, 1987. So I have been in the system for just over 22 years. Uh, and most of that time I have worked uh, with the uh, UN Human Rights Program. And uh, for considerable period of that time, I have worked with the uh, human rights treaty bodies and with uh, treaty-based individual complaints procedures. Uh, I am currently the head of the petitions unit that handles all the treaty-based individual complaints procedures. There are currently five procedures uh, in operation, uh, the procedure under the uh, optional protocol to the ICCPR, the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, the procedure under the optional protocol to the Convention on the Elimination of Discrimination Against Women, the procedure under, the, uh, under Article 22 of the Convention Against Torture, and the procedure under Article 14 of the Convention on the Elimination of Discrimination, of Racial Discrimination. There's a new procedure under the optional protocol to the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, uh, which is in force, but since the uh, respective uh, monitoring body, the Committee on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, has only just um, began its operations and activities, uh, there are no pending cases under that procedure yet. I'm in charge of a small unit called the Petitions Unit, uh, which consists of um, 11 lawyers and uh, three secretaries, and the lawyers process and handle all the cases that are submitted uh, to the human rights treaty bodies for consideration under these individual treaty-based complaints procedures. At the moment, there are 112 countries that have uh, ratified the optional protocol to the uh, Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, 97 that had ratified the uh, optional protocol to the Convention on the Elimination of Discrimination Against Women. 64 have ratified uh, the procedure or have accepted the procedure under Article 22 of the Convention Against Torture. And uh, roughly 50 have uh, accepted the procedure under Article 14 of the Convention on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination. These procedures are optional, which means that those states that uh, have ratified the uh, parent instrument uh, have the option of signing on to the complaints procedure, but they do need not do so. This is why, in general, you have far fewer parties to the complaints procedure than to the, monetary, uh, to the convention or the covenant uh, under which the complaints procedure has been established. The petitions unit is the kind of uh, uh, meeting point for all the complaints uh, that are submitted uh, to the system. The registry of the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights uh, channels uh, every year approximately uh, 10,000 pieces, uh, 10 to 12,000 pieces of correspondence to the petitions unit. Uh, and uh, the legal officers uh, undertake a prima facie legal analysis uh, as to whether the complaints can actually be dealt with under the existing uh, individual treaty-based complaints procedures or whether they would be better off under other procedures such as the procedures, uh, special procedures of the Human Rights Council, the complaints procedure of the Human Rights Council or other complaints procedures. 
once this uh, filtering process has uh, taken place, uh, the uh, complainants are uh, uh, told uh, whether or not uh, their cases can actually be dealt with with any prospect of success under any of the existing procedures. And in a majority of cases, they will be told uh, that for whatever procedural reason, the case cannot be dealt with with any prospect of success. And these complainants are sent uh, uh, either standard letters, which are form letters, unsigned, or more individualized contact letters uh, where it is explained in more detail why the case cannot be uh, processed. Those cases uh, that uh, prima facie can be examined uh, under any of the existing complaints procedures are summarized and then sent to a member of the respective uh, monitoring uh, treaty body called uh, in general the Special Rapporteur for New Communications and Interim Measures, who has to decide and provide instructions on how to proceed with the case. If the rapporteur believes that uh, this is indeed a case that can be dealt with uh, under the procedure, he or she will instruct the secretariat, i.e. myself or my colleagues, to register the case and uh, send it to the uh, state party, i.e. to the government concerned, for considerations, for, for observations, I'm sorry, on admissibility and or the merits of the case. The procedures on transmittal and deadlines for submission of uh, observations on admissibility and merits vary a little bit from treaty uh, body to treaty body, from committee to committee, but uh, by and large uh, there are um, common features. Uh, the state party has usually a number of months between two and four months to comment on the admissibility of the complaint and uh, generally uh, six months to, to uh, file observations on both admissibility and the merits of a complaint. Generally, if a government is asked to uh, provide observations, uh, it is uh, uh, sent the entire case file, i.e. all the materials that the complainant has sent uh, to the petitions unit. Some case files are extremely voluminous and uh, contain several uh, uh, folders of uh, uh, documentation with supporting uh, evidence, documentation, transcripts of judgments, uh, etc. Some communications complaints uh, are very thin and uh, consist of a simple letter of allegation sent to the UN and to the petitions unit. Uh, but if there's a serious allegation of violations of any of the uh, provisions of the existing instruments, that's as valid a complaint as a, a very um, voluminous submission made by a law firm on behalf of a complainant. Uh, states parties uh, should uh, address in detail the issues that they see in relation to admissibility and the merits of complaints. If they require more time than uh, the deadlines that are uh, imparted to them, they should uh, provide written justifications as to why they need more time. Under the existing uh, complaints procedures, a lot of states parties, and I would say it's roughly half of them, specifically contest the admissibility of complaints. And I will, uh, in a few uh, um, bullet points, uh, mention the main admissibility criteria for complaints. Number one, the complainant must have exhausted uh, available and effective domestic remedies at the national level. It's a long-standing and uh, plausible rule of international law that uh, you have to exhaust uh, 
available judicial remedy at the national level before you can go to an international instance. Uh, one of the regional human rights instances, such as the European Court of Human Rights or the Inter-American Court of Human Rights or the uh, UN treaty bodies. Exhaustion of domestic remedies um, is the rule, but there are two qualifiers. You need not exhaust domestic remedies uh, if pursuit of such remedies at the national level has been unreasonably prolonged. But what unreasonable prolongation in fact means has to be decided on a case-by-case -case basis. There can be cases um, involving allegations of torture with clear-cut supporting evidence uh, that corroborate uh, uh, the allegation of torture, such as medical reports, uh, and if uh, domestic remedies uh, take more than two years to exhaust uh, in such a clear-cut situation, a treaty body uh, might say that uh, remedies have been unre unreasonably prolonged. If, on the other hand, uh, you have a factually very complex and legally very complex situation uh, where the facts are disputed by the parties, uh, where there are concurrent uh, legal proceedings against the uh, uh, petitioner on various grounds and at various levels, uh, it might well be that a period of eight to ten years of pursuit of domestic remedies is not considered unreasonably prolonged. So that has to be decided on a case-by-case -case, uh, basis. Number two, the remedies at the national level must in fact be available and effective. There should not be exceptional remedies or mere paper remedies that only exist on paper. They uh, should provide a reasonable prospect of redress at the national level. I can give one example from the uh, history and the uh, experience of the Human Rights Committee under the optional protocol to the ICCPR, where the complainant actually com contended that domestic remedies had been exhausted and where the government uh, in, uh, concerned indicated that the uh, complainant had not resorted to a specific remedy available in the Code of Criminal Procedure. But the complainant could then uh, uh, show and demonstrate that this remedy uh, invoked by the state party had not been uh, used successfully once since the independence of the country concerned more in the uh, 1820s, i.e. close to 200 years ago. And in the circumstances, the committee did not consider that remedy invoked by the state an effective remedy. Secondly, a complainant uh, should not uh, resort to uh, uh, filing his or her complaint in two international instances uh, at the same time. It very often happens that we find out that the case that has been submitted to one of the UN human rights treaty bodies uh, is at the same time uh, pending or has been submitted to one of the regional human rights mechanisms. The Inter-American Court in uh, uh, Costa Rica, the European Court of Human Rights in Strasbourg, or the African uh, Commission on Human and People's Rights in Banjul, Gambia. If it's clear that the case is pending in the regional instance as well, the treaty body, or the UN treaty body, cannot simultaneously uh, deal with the case. The complainant must therefore choose which mechanism he or she prefers. <coughs> there is the question of whether you can submit successively cases to first a regional mechanism and then a UN mechanism. That's possible at the level of the Americas and, uh, and the Afri for African states parties to the instruments. It's generally not possible for European states parties uh, to the complaints procedures <coughs> because most of them have entered a reservation to the effect that 
once the European Court of Human Rights has disposed of the case and negatively disposed of the case, the complainant cannot thereafter go to one of the UN treaty bodies in Geneva. There are only three or four European states that have not made that specific uh, reservation. Thirdly, third admissibility uh, condition, the complaint must be, uh, or the allegation of violations of uh, provisions of the relevant instruments must be uh, admissible ratione materiae, i.e. must concern the violation of a right that is actually covered by one of the instruments. The right to property per se, for example, is not covered by any of the existing UN human rights instruments. And if a complaint relates, uh, relates uh, exclusively to a violation uh, of the right to property, uh, it would, be, would have to be declared inadmissible ratione materiae. If it is linked to violations of other rights, such as the right not to be uh, discriminated on various grounds, or uh, violation of the right to property in uh, proceedings that are unfair or do not meet your process requirements, then the treaty body would be able to deal with the matter. There are two or three other admissibility criteria that um, are a little technical to explain. I don't need to dwell on those. Uh, admissibility ratione temporis, uh, i.e. Uh, the alleged violations must occur after entry into force of the relevant mechanism for the state concerned, or admissibility uh, ratione persone, uh, the victim must actually uh, be able to show that he or she is personally and directly affected by the alleged violation of uh, his or her rights. Uh, the so-called actio popularis uh, is not permissible under the uh, uh, individual treaty-based complaints procedures. <coughs> Once a state party has uh, commented on these uh, admissibility criteria and specifically uh, instructed the treaty body to deal with the issue of admissibility in the first phase and stage, then uh, the treaty body will have to um, look at the arguments advanced by the parties, by the state party and by the complainant and decide on admissibility. If the treaty body concerned uh, uh, declares the case inadmissible, on one of the, uh, because of one of uh, uh, the conditions that I have just explained, uh, non-exhaustion of domestic remedies, pending uh, litispondence of the case in another international instance, uh, that is usually the end of the end of the story. The case will be declared inadmissible, sent to the state party concerned and to the complainant, and that in inadmissibility decision will be final. I.e., the complainant cannot uh, come back and argue for a reopening of the case, except where he can uh, say if the case was declared inadmissible on the basis of non-exhaustion of domestic remedies, that he has in the meantime or after a certain period of time exhausted domestic remedies and can now resubmit the case. There are quite a few instances where uh, cases were initially declared inadmissible for non-exhaustion of domestic remedies and later admitted again after the complainant showed that he or she had in fact exhausted domestic remedies. If uh, a treaty body, however, considers that all the admissibility uh, criteria are met, the case is declared admissible and will proceed forward to consideration on the merits. Most of the treaty bodies uh, nowadays, uh, to save time and uh, to make the best uh, uh, use of uh, limited uh, 
resources, especially uh, the limited time that they have uh, available for disposal of cases, uh, try and deal with admissibility and merits at the same time. If the state party has made um, substantial uh, observations on the merits of the case, and if uh, the petitioner in turn has commented on uh, what the state party had to say on the merits, uh, the treaty body is ready to consider the case, a case uh, on the merits. Uh, and uh, this usually uh, entails uh, a or several rounds of discussion among uh, treaty body members and on how best to dispose of the case. Uh, the general rule tends to be that uh, treaty bodies will try to decide uh, cases uh, on the basis of consensus. Consensus means, and I believe it's uh, formally uh, uh, defined in uh, one of the articles or subparagraphs uh, of the Law of the Sea Convention, absence of formal objection. It doesn't mean unanimity. If you have a treaty body consisting of uh, 18 members and 16 members uh, agree with the proposed draft on the merits of the case, proposed draft decision on the merits, uh, and two members simply keep quiet uh, but would otherwise be oppo uh, opposed to the findings, then the case uh, would be uh, adopted by consensus. Uh, if, however, a member formally objects to a result that is otherwise uh, acceptable to all the other experts, then uh, the consensus uh, has just uh, uh, disappeared and uh, one has to uh, uh, find uh, new ways of disposing of the case. Uh, my personal opinion is that consensual decision-making is uh, very well suited to the treaty-making process, but it's pretty ill-suited uh, to uh, quasi-judicial uh, uh, procedures uh, for the determination of uh, human rights violation in treaty-based individual complaints procedures. Nowadays, um, you have uh, developments um, uh, pursuant to which uh, treaty bodies do not uh, uh, discuss the merits of a particular case uh, for more than uh, two or three rounds of discussion, and then uh, you proceed to an informal vote trying to f figure out on uh, whose side the majority uh, uh, is, uh, the majority of treaty body members is. Uh, to give you an example, uh, this morning uh, in the Human Rights Committee, a case was debated uh, concerning a European state party to the optional protocol, and at stake was the determination of a legal issue which in that particular format had not been uh, considered before. And for a treaty body consisting of uh, 18 members, uh, 18 members from various, uh, all the regions of the world with very various uh, legal backgrounds. Uh, it's almost inconceivable that you uh, uh, develop consensus on a complex legal issue uh, in one go. In that particular case, there were several rounds of debate. Uh, a majority of members uh, were in favor of a finding of a violation of a provision of the ICCPR. A sizable minority was in favor of uh, um, finding no violation of provisions of the ICCPR. And if um, that situation uh, transpires and crystallizes, uh, the committee uh, concerned would probably uh, make an informal str straw poll on where members stand. The majority decision will carry the day, and those in the minority will have the right to uh, append uh, individual opinions, concurring, dissenting uh, individual opinions. And I think that's a, a good practice that does not necessarily undermine 
the authority of the decisions of the treaty bodies. There have been uh, in the past, in the recent past, several decisions of uh, the uh, Committee on the Elimination of Discrimination Against Women and above all <coughs> decisions of the Human Rights Committee where there were um, one or several individual opinions uh, undersigned by one or several members uh, of these committees and the decisions themselves were nonetheless uh, uh, accepted by the governments concerned. And I think if you look at the judicial uh, practice at the national level, uh, no one would question the judgment of the US Supreme Court, uh, which is handed out by a five to four majority, simply because uh, four justices uh, were on the minority side. Or if uh, the German Constitutional Court, the chamber, hands down a judgment uh, by a vote of eight to eight, with the president of the chamber casting the decisive vote, that does not undermine the authority of the judgment of the German Constitutional Court. Above all, uh, undermining uh, the consensual decision-making um, uh, mode of the treaty bodies tends to improve the quality of the reasoning of uh, treaty body decisions. If you strive um, endlessly for consensus, uh, chances are that you uh, water down the ratio decidendi of the decision, the arguments uh, that uh, lead to a finding of a violation of one of the existing instruments or finding of no violation of the uh, provisions of an instrument. Uh, if you uh, give the minority the uh, right to uh, append individual opinions, uh, the uh, bulk of the draft uh, ratio decedendi will still uh, remain uh, in the text of the final decision and that tends to be uh, uh, in favor of a better argumentation uh, on the merits of treaty body decisions. Once there has been a decision on the merits of a case, uh, this uh, decision is transmitted to the uh, state party concerned and to the complainant or his or her legal uh, representative. The terminology used for the decisions of the treaty bodies, they are called views or opinions, uh, already indicates that they are not specifically per se legally binding titles. They're not an enforceable title like uh, judgments of the uh, Inter-American Court of Human Rights or the European Court of Human Rights. Uh, you cannot go to the Minister of Justice or the Attorney General of your country with a positive decision of the Human Rights Committee or the Committee Against Torture and tell the Minister of Justice or Attorney, Ag Attorney General implement that decision. This said, the Decisions of the treaty bodies carry considerable legal uh, weight and moral weight. And uh, as the treaty body experts have been fully mindful of the fact that uh, their decisions under complaints procedures were not uh, per se legally binding, uh, they have developed uh, uh, mechanisms and modalities uh, to enhance the legal status of their decisions over the years. I think the most important uh, mechanism uh, would be uh, the procedure for following up on decisions where violations of uh, the various human rights instruments have been found. The Human Rights Committee was the first to develop a follow-up procedure in the early 1990s. It um, established the mandate of a special rapporteur for follow-up on views, whose task uh, it is to uh, regularly engage with those states' parties uh, against which a decision had been adopted with a finding of a violation of the ICCPR. Other treaty bodies that have uh, 
uh, or handle complaints procedures have over the years also inst uh, established follow-up procedures. Um, the Committee Against Torture works with uh, two rapporteurs for follow-up on uh, the decisions of this body, uh, the Committee on the Elimination of Discrimination, Racial Discrimination has designated one member to deal with follow-up on decisions. And in the case of the uh, Committee on Elimination of Discrimination Against Women, it's a working group that deals, or two members of a working group that deal with issues of uh, follow-up. And if you engage uh, constructive but persistent dialogue with states' parties on what they do or can do or are prepared to do in terms of implementation of uh, treaty body decisions, you normally do get some positive results. Uh, very recently, we had, uh, under the follow-up procedure of CEDAW, the Committee on the Elimination of Discrimination Against Women, a case um, where after approximately a year and a half or two years of follow-up uh, debates between the committee and the government concerned, and in that case I can name it because it's the best uh, practice example, Hungary, Hungary uh, notified the committee last week that it would be prepared to um, grant compensation to the victim uh, uh, in a case where the committee uh, uh, CEDO had decided uh, uh, two or three years ago that Hungary had uh, violated provisions uh, of CEDO. And it's uh, quite noteworthy that the Hungary, in fact, uh, offered compensation that was in excess of what the complainant herself had requested in the Hungarian courts. Another good example is uh, the follow-up provided uh, or given by Montenegro to a, a decision uh, adopted by CERD a few years ago where um, a group of uh, Roma who were found to have been discriminated again on the basis of their uh, uh, origin, uh, national origin, uh, got compensation, uh, uh, quite a large amount, several hundred thousands of Euro, uh, euros. And under the optional protocol to the ICCPR, in a very sensitive case concerning uh, an African uh, country, Burkina Faso, the government of Burkina Faso um, also offered the widow of the uh, uh, assassinated former president of the country uh, compensation uh, in the amount of uh, several hundreds of thousands of uh, euros. These are good examples of follow-up to treaty body decisions. One has to be honest and say that not all states' parties accept that uh, the decisions of the treaty bodies are, are binding and should be implemented. There are a number of uh, states' parties that are simply silent under the follow-up procedure. There are states' parties that challenge the legal reasoning of the committees, of the treaty bodies, and uh, argue that uh, um, the interpretation given by the committees uh, uh, is not sustainable uh, in the light of the travaux preparatoire to the various instruments uh, or because it's uh, an interpretation that uh, uh, has not been shared uh, by uh, courts at the national level or because there's different jurisprudence on the same issue of regional human rights uh, instances. And finally, there are those uh, states' parties that um, simply uh, um, say that uh, the decisions of the treaty bodies are, legally, uh, are not legally binding and therefore they are not obliged uh, to uh, offer a remedy. All the treaty bodies nowadays uh, report on follow-up to decisions in the annual reports to the GA and that can be a good instrument in terms of shaming states parties that have not 
provided any follow-up to decisions of the treaty bodies. There have been a couple of examples uh, in the Human Rights Committee, for example, where, a state, where states' parties were specifically named as non-compliant with treaty body decisions in uh, follow-up chapters uh, of annual reports to the GA, and those states' parties um, uh, reacted and proceeded to offer the complainant uh, um, one form of remedy. Sometimes states' parties are quite inventive in, what they, uh, in terms of what they offer as a remedy to the complainant uh, in a case concerning Peru, the U uh, no, Ecuador, I'm sorry. The Human Rights Committee had uh, recommended uh, that compensation be paid to a person who had been arbitrarily detained without uh, trial and uh, uh, judgment for a number of years. Uh, and the state party replied that rather than uh, offering a nominal compensation, it would find him a, a job in the civil service, which uh, for the particular personal situation, situation of the complainant was much pre preferable to compensation. There are new developments which uh, I personally consider quite uh, positive, um, and uh, this uh, relates to what the former president of the French Court of Cassation has called the cross-fertilization between the jurisprudence of international human rights bodies, UN human rights bodies, regional human rights instances, and the highest judicial instances of, uh, of uh, national judiciaries. If you look back 15, 18 years to the beginning of the 1990s, you had to get the clear impression that the regional instances and the UN human rights bodies uh, uh, operated in a vacuum. They did not know of each other's jurisprudence, uh, uh, argued that uh, they were only uh, implementing uh, the provisions of the instrument under which they were established and need, that they need not look to comparable jurisprudence of other bodies. Uh, and as recently as 1996, I overheard members of the Human Rights Committee saying that all they were concerned was with the implementation of the provisions of the Covenant on Civil and Political Rights and that they need not uh, pay any attention of uh, similar or sometimes identical jurisprudence in relation to the application of the European Convention on Human Rights or the Inter-American Convention on Human Rights. The situation has changed. Nowadays you find uh, regional instances that more and more often uh, invoke and rely on decisions of the UN human rights treaty bodies. Conversely, you have the treaty bodies that uh, look more and more at relevant jurisprudence in the regional human rights uh, instances and, where necessary, at the uh, relevant jurisprudence of the highest judicial national instances. And in 2003 or 2004, the Human Rights Committee, for the first time ever, uh, reversed its jurisprudence on a legally very complex issue, its extradition of a complainant uh, from an abolitionist country to a country where, which retains the death penalty and where the extradited uh, individual might face the death penalty. There was jurisprudence from the Human Rights Committee to the effect from the 1990s that you could extradite a person to a retentionist state without asking for assurances that the death penalty, if imposed, would not be carried out. Then between the mid-19 or the early 1990s and uh, the early years of uh, this decade, uh, you had uh, uh, a lot of jurisprudence from US and European tribunals which went the other way to the effect that uh, you could not uh, extradite a person from an abolitionist to a retentionist uh, country without 
seeking assurances that the death penalty would uh, not be imposed and not carried out. And the Human Rights Committee, in the light of these jurisprudential developments at the national and regional level, uh, reversed its jurisprudence, uh, pointing specifically to these uh, new developments in international law and in uh, international and national judicial practice. I think that's a positive development. And you have uh, someone like the former president of the uh, French Court of Cassation, a body that was not known hitherto to uh, rely very much on the primacy of international law, uh, then um, you could uh, justifiably say that you have uh, make, made a very big step in the right direction. The High Commissioner for Human Rights uh, is aware of these developments and supports them very much. Uh, she supports these developments inter alia by organizing a judicial colloquia that bring together judges from the regional human rights mechanisms and uh, treaty body experts uh, to discuss issues of common concern, uh, issues of convergence of jurisprudence, uh, issues of uh, divergence of jurisprudence where this exists, because there are still some issue areas and thematic areas where there is diverging jurisprudence. The office has also organized a number of uh, judicial colloquia at the regional level on the uh, domestic application of uh, international uh, human rights norms and international uh, human rights uh, jurisprudence. And three such colloquia have taken place in, uh, since 2006 in uh, Kenya, in Panama, and more recently in Bangkok. And it's very interesting to listen to the uh, observations and comments made during those uh, judicial colloquia by national judges, Supreme Court justices, uh, Court of Appeal judges, uh, uh, other justices, uh, what they think about the jurisprudence of the treaty bodies. And it's interesting to see that uh, many of them are actually aware of the jurisprudence of the human rights treaty bodies. Uh, the point of criticism they have is that these uh, uh, decisions should, uh, in many instances, be better and more coherently argued. Uh, and this is, uh, again goes back to the uh, consensual decision-making uh, mode that I had criticized a little bit uh, on an earlier occasion, uh, they argue that, um, especially if they come from a common law tradition, that if these uh, treaty body decisions were a little better and more coherently argued on the, f on the merits, uh, they could actually be uh, used by the national judges uh, as judicial precedents. There are now numerous uh, national uh, tribunals and courts uh, that actually do rely on or cite the jurisprudence of the treaty bodies uh, a best practices example is probably a, a 2004 judgment of the Hong Kong Court of Final Appeal, which dealt with uh, uh, immigration issues uh, in the Hong Kong administrative, uh, special administrative uh, region, and where the co Court of Final Appeal of Hong Kong uh, extensively uh, deals with the jurisprudence uh, of the Committee Against Torture and the general comments of the Committee Against Torture. And this is a positive development, this cross-fertilization, because uh, it leads to what, uh, what could ultimately uh, term the truly universal uh, human rights uh, jurisprudence. Thank you for your attention.